crazy New Year's Eve at the Freestead house last night, up till midnight, Eastern time, <laughs> and uh, in bed by 9.05, so that's how we roll with the little ones. Hey, as a kid, uh, do you remember opening presents? And you'd have all your presents there, of course, you didn't know what was inside. Do you remember playing the game of, like, I want to open the best one last? Did you do that? Yeah? No? I mean, maybe it was by size or weight, or you'd kind of shake it, but you kind of knew what you were expecting, but you didn't want to, like, blow it and open that first. You wanted that to be the last one, so you'd kind of be strategic with what you were opening. Well, God has a last present for you this morning. I wrapped it myself. He asked me to. But, uh, but, but we saved the best for last for you. And we get to open it this morning because it's God's New Year's resolution for you. Are you ready? You want to know what's inside? Uh, I guess the slide gives it away. There's no mystery. So here's God's wish for you, his New Year's resolution. His final gift to you of 2022 into 2023 is the righteous life. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, the righteous life, what it is, why God wants it for you, why you should want it for yourself, okay? The righteous life. The concept of righteousness shows up throughout the Bible. You might know that Noah was referred to as a righteous man, or that when Abraham believed the promises of God, God credited it to him as righteousness. Or you may be familiar with the phrase, the righteous will live by faith, or that uh, Jesus himself said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So that's a concept that shows up throughout scripture. And a simple way to understand righteousness would be to shorthand it and just say it is right living, right living. In other words, God has given you a life. And within that life, there are thousands of choices, maybe millions of choices that you'll make in your lifetime. And there is a right standard, the absolute A plus gold standard for choices that you might make. And then anything that's outside of that A plus standard uh, would be what the Bible calls unrighteousness. And God's wish for you is that you would live by a standard of righteousness. Just like for my wife and I, uh, it's very gratifying to see your kids open Christmas presents and be excited about what's inside. But what's even more gratifying is that they are still playing with that thing three months down the road, six months down the road, nine months down the road, and they haven't destroyed it, they haven't broken it, they haven't discarded it or ignored it, but they're still into that thing that you gave them, right? And in the same way, uh, you know, my wife and I gave our children life, but that wasn't the end of the miracle. Uh, it's a miracle to see them grow and develop and learn new skills and interact with each other and with us properly, and we celebrate those things. And so in the same way, God, who gave you life, was not content just to give you the gift of life and then turn his back and say, no, okay, you're on your own, you figure it out. That is one way to understand God. But that's not our understanding of God. Our understanding of God is that he's a personal God. And he's an intentional God. He's a God who has a will, which is a wish, which is a desire for you in decision-making the path of righteousness. And God's wish for you this year 
and next year and the next year is that you would live a righteous life. Listen to how Romans chapter 6 describes this. Paul is talking about you can live your life with your mind set on the old things or you can live your life with your mind set on the new reality. And the old reality is sin and darkness and death. And the new reality is life and forgiveness and the hope of a future. And he says, when you're in the new reality, sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. And later on in verse 18, he says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. There it is, the righteous life, God's wish for you, that you would willingly accept slavery to righteousness. That in, in spite of all the internal desires that I have and the wishes that I have for myself and all the ways that I want to elevate myself, I would intentionally say, despite my free will, I want God to be the master of my life. And I want to be a slave to his plans and his will, slaves to righteousness. So I want to make five observations this morning about this business of righteous living. And then we'll tie it all together at the end with ways that you and I can live the righteous life in 2023. Sounds good? Sounds good. All right. Number one, the righteous life is a life. The righteous life is a life. And I point this out because it would be so simple if we only had to live our lives in theory. If life stood still, it'd be really easy in each and every situation to say, this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. But that's not the way that we live life. Now, we get these lifestyle magazines at our house mailed to us. You probably get these in the mail too. They come free. It's usually advertised somebody's business. And inside, there's all these little articles. So we got this one in November, and I, this one just made me laugh so much because uh, the title of this article is How to Throw a Holiday Party, Okay. Listen to some of these very helpful suggestions. <laughs> your job as the party host is to plan and throw a party your guests will enjoy. These steps can help make your party a success. Number one, you first need to let your guests know that they're invited. <laughs> wow. Include important details such as what, when, and where. It can be a text invite, a phone call, or an engraved invitation, whatever you choose. Then it reminds me, you need food and drink at your party. Oh, wow. You could plan a three-course meal or just put a collection of finger foods. A playlist of holiday tunes will add a lively vibe. You could host a white elephant game, and then there's a paragraph explaining what white elephant exchange is. And then it goes on with uh, tips for the host. I like this. As the host, your role is to make sure everyone enjoys the party. Talk with your guests during your event. And say goodbye when they leave. <laughs> For party guests, there's a section. Mind your manners. You should arrive on time, actively participate, and be polite to other guests. I think the, the reason this strikes me as so funny is no one really lives their life like this. Life is learned through experiences, and we're usually making tens of decisions at the same time. So at the same time as you're planning your holiday party, you're balancing all sorts of other priorities and people's expectations. And it's not as simple as dry following of a list like this. It just, stuff comes up and you react to it. And then you make another decision and you react to it on and on and on. And that's what life is. Life is not following the law. 
And that's an important message of the New Testament. That the pathway to the righteous life is actually not law, it's grace. We say that again. The pathway to the righteous life is actually not law, it's grace. And we usually get that backwards. And this is true now in a secular sense and in a Christian religious sense. Let me explain both of them. We usually get that backwards. When we want to improve ourselves, we make a New Year's resolution, I'm going to exercise more, I'm going to eat less, I'm going to quit drinking, quit smoking, whatever. And we usually are really, really tough on ourselves. And we set really stringent standards for ourselves. And then we screw up and we feel really bad and we go, oh, okay, I guess I won't eat less this year. I'll wait till 2024. (laughs) But the path to righteousness is actually grace, not law. So that anybody who's a fitness coach or a nutritionist will tell you, you've got to have grace with yourself. Don't give up the first time that you skip a morning trip to the gym. It takes 60 days to start a new habit. So so you're going to make a mistake, but then you're going to get back on the treadmill the next day and you're just going to keep on going. And so in a secular sense, that is true, that the, the road to righteous living is not the law, it's grace. But there's a problem. And the problem is, God's standard of righteousness is so high, it doesn't allow for error. It's the A plus 100% gold standard of decision-making. So, so how then can grace exist alongside of righteousness? How can grace, which tolerates mistakes and do-overs and whoops and errors, how can it exist along God's righteous standard? And here's how. Because in a Christian religious sense, that statement also holds true, that that the pathway to righteousness is not law, it's grace. Because the pathway to righteousness is a life, but it's someone else's life. It's Jesus' life. So that it's not me just beating myself up bearing down, willpower, trying really hard. It's accepting an alien life force, an outside life force inside of me, and now Jesus lives his righteousness in and through you. And that's the pathway to righteousness. And it doesn't get unlocked until you accept by grace the gift of God. Listen to how Galatians 2.20 puts it. Paul says, I writing as a Christian now, I've become a Christian, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see what it is? The righteous life is a life, but it's not your life lived on your terms. It's the life of Christ lived in and through you. So that's number one. Number two, closely related to that, is that the righteous life is a gift that is given to you and me. He goes on to say in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God because if righteousness could be gained through the law, if I could just live a righteous life by saying, give me the 289 rules that I have to follow every day, If righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So the question to you is, did Christ die for nothing? And you're going to answer that individually. Everybody's going to have their own answer to that question. Did Christ die for nothing? Was it just an accident, an error in history? Was it just a tragic story that ended wrong? Did Christ die for nothing? 
Or do you believe, as I do, that Christ died on purpose and with a purpose in mind? It was tragic, yes, but it achieved something. And what it achieved was the possibility of an exchange. Your life for his. Your broken willpower for his unstoppable power. Your will, your ambition for God's will. I don't set aside the grace of God because if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Did Christ die for nothing? If the answer is no, then you and I have to stop living self-righteous lives so that we can live his righteous life through us. The righteous life is a supernatural life. In the book of Galatians, uh, he also says, walk by the Spirit. And in this way, you won't fulfill the, the, the desires or the lust of the flesh. You won't live just to satisfy yourself, but to satisfy God. So righteousness is a gift. You can't achieve it. You can't work for it. You can't attain it, no matter how hard you try. Let's just camp on that for a second, because that runs contrary to the story that we all believe. We've all heard, if you can believe it, you can achieve it. Yeah. If you can dream it, you can do it. You can do anything that you set your mind to. The American dream, and it's a wonderful sentiment, and it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ begins when I say, ah, actually, I'm unable to live righteously towards my spouse in my marriage. Jesus, I need your life in and through me as I live out my marriage. I am not able to parent righteously. I am passing on things through my very behavior that my children are picking up that are broken and sinful. Jesus, I need you to righteously live in and through me. I cannot be a righteous boss or a righteous employee. There is too much brokenness in my interaction with people. And so, Jesus, I need your righteousness to live in and through me. You see how that works? I'm exchanging my self-ambition, what the Bible calls the lust of my flesh, for the life of Christ in me. If we're going to live the righteous life, we have to believe in ourselves a little less and in him a little more. It's like John the Baptist said when Jesus came on the scene. He said, now, now he must become greater and I must become less. I was having coffee with a guy uh, last week and we were kind of talking about where he was at in his spiritual journey and he's facing some big life decisions right now and, and sort of where is God fitting in that and, and all this kind of thing. And he said, he said, I believe in God. I believe God's got a will and a purpose for me, but he said, I just can't buy the idea of grace. He said, the idea that I would be given something that I haven't earned, that I don't deserve, when I have such high standards that I hold myself to, I just can't believe it. I said, well, I get it. I get it. I think we all struggle with that. And the struggle is to take grace from this concept that's out there that we can describe in words and bring it into the orbit where it becomes an ideal, where we can go, oh, I, I can see it for myself, and then internalize it and make it the reality. That's the job for you and I. And all of your hard work all your life 
might lead to status, might lead to wealth, but it will not lead to salvation. And salvation is the key to eternal life. Say, I don't care about eternal life. I care about this life right now. Well, but someday you will. Because someday you'll hit a wall in life where you go, I, I, there's got to be something more. I want there to be something more. And, and how many of you can relate to, like, you have a really hard day at work. There's a lot of frustration or a lot of conflict at work. And isn't it great if you can, to put work aside and then go to your other life, which is at home. And that's a picture of what Jesus offers for us. That as human beings, we don't need a bailout. We need an actual separate existence. We can lift ourselves up from the turmoil that's down here and have clear 360-degree vision of what's going on. That's the promise of a new life. So, so the, the righteous life is offered to us. It's the life of Christ. It is a gift offered to us. And now, number three, the righteous life involves discipline. And here's why. Because some days, I'm really righteous. And most days, I'm not righteous. Because I'm battling against what the Bible describes as my natural self. Or older translations of the Bible will call it the old man, the old mark. So that I wake up in the morning and I am not ready for the supernatural life of Jesus to throw, flow in and through me out to others. I wake up in the morning and I'm cranky. I'm tired. I want another hour of sleep. I don't want to be available to my wife and kids at all. I just want coffee and a nap. And that's the natural me. And it crops up during the day. I, I don't want to deal with others. I don't want to give myself away to others. I just want me and I want to satisfy my natural self. And so what do I need? I need discipline. I need to pursue righteousness, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. To, to Timothy, he says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Why do we need to pursue those things? Not because they're a moving target, but because we are moving pursuers. See? Not because it flees away from us, but because we flee away from it and back, back towards self-satisfaction. So there's a Christian hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and there's a line in there that goes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God that I love. And that's a picture of us needing to claw our way back to the righteous existence that God has for us. So here's the daily dance. I said earlier, it'd be easy to live the righteous life if we lived it standing still. Right there in the middle of the tabletop, boom, I'm nailing it. But that's not how life is lived. Life is lived this way. And I'm on the move, and I'm interacting with other people, and I'm making decisions. Ah, man, ah, boy, center myself, and okay, and I got people are annoying me, and I'm back and forth, and down, right? And that's why righteousness is so difficult, because it's an organic process, and I'm dealing with other people, and man, if I didn't have to do that, I could just keep things perfect every single time, and... That is not real life. 
So how do I put myself and my own desires to death so the thing that we talked about, Jesus working in and through me out to other people, can actually happen? And the answer is discipline. Discipline. Discipline is something of a dirty word in Christianity because we go, oh, you're trying to earn something from God. No, no, no. No, no, no. Discipline is, is another word for it is formative discipline. And formative discipline isn't, oh, shame on me when I do wrong. Formative discipline is the rhythms, the routines that I adapt or adopt in order to shape me and form me to be as I ought to be. So that I'm saying no to myself when that old me bubbles up, that flesh. Me, me, I want it, I want it. Say no to myself and say yes to what God wants in any and every situation. That's not earning anything from God. What that is, is being obedient to Jesus when he said, if anybody wants to follow me, they have to deny themselves, take up their cross, how often? Daily, and follow me. Yeah. And if you're like me, I need to deny myself not just daily, but multiple times per day. Because I'm tempted to go back to the flesh. I'm tempted to go back to the willpower. I'm tempted to go back to the self-righteousness. And I've got to lay that down and go, no, no, not me, but him in me. He must become greater. I must become less. God can have righteous desires for us, even if it's not a condition of our salvation. Just like I can have righteous desires for my kids, and it's not a condition of my love for them. I can have desires for the way that they interact with one another. I can have desires for the way that they uh, develop, how they spend their time. And it's not a condition of my love for them at all. It's just that me wanting the best for them. So the question for you and I is, what sort of discipline are you willing to adopt in your life to keep yourself small and keep him really big, which is how it ought to be? Let me give you some suggestions. Would it be simplifying your life a little bit so that every day is not just treading water, treading water to keep your head above water? Would it be more regularly observing a pattern of Sabbath or church attendance? Would it be a habit of starting your day in prayer or not just starting your day in prayer, but pausing your day at the most illogical moments when you are overwhelmed and you are busy and you are under pressure, nonetheless stepping away like Jesus stepped away from the crowds when people were pressing in on him to get time alone with the Father? Could it be giving away more even when you feel like you can't, in order to feel Jesus inside of you. So discipline, number four. Number four is a barrier to the righteous life. And there's a few things that can throw us off track in the pursuit of the righteous life. But scripture is specific on this one, and it is anger. James 1, 19 and 20. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Anger is like a, the proverbial cow that wanders onto the railroad tracks. And the train's got to get somewhere and it's got to get there on schedule. But now there's the cow there. And it can't run over the cow. It'll not only kill the cow, but it could derail the train altogether. 
And so what does it do? What's, what's the train do? Well, it's got to stop, and it's got to deal with the cow that's there. And James says human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires because it soaks up so much of our attention. And our focus becomes so narrow on this one thing that we're so angry about that we lose our ability to be a resource at all to other things. I'll give you an example. A couple years ago when we were doing online messages, I preached a message and in that message I talked about a high-pitched squeal that was going on in my neighborhood that apparently only I could hear. It was reverberating across the valley in between us and this kind of business district. And, and at night, when it was quiet in my neighborhood, as it should be, there was nonetheless a high-pitched squeal that only I could hear. The neighbors were a little bit lower. They couldn't hear it. My wife couldn't hear it, but I could hear it. And so when I'd wake up in the middle of the night in the quiet of my house... I could still hear this high-pitched sound coming through. So one morning, early one morning, about four in the morning, I get up and I'm mad. I hop in my car. I'm going to drive around. I'm going to find the source of this thing no matter what. I'm driving, 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 and I finally find it. There's like some generators running in these big freight cars outside this factory. And uh, it's a mile and a half from my house, right? But I can hear that sound. And so I'm out of my car, and I'm taking video. I'm going to send it to the city. <laughs> I'm taking decibel readings with an app on my phone at the property line because there's a city ordinance about that, you know. I'm writing emails, and I'm leaving voicemails and this kind of thing. I'm just worked up about this. And I, what I said in the message was they had a, I found out they had a 90-day permit to operate these things. For 90 days, they could do extra power outside. And what I said in the message was, I'll bet you that this is going to go away with time. And then I'm going to find something else to be worked up about. Sure enough, I was right. <laughs> On the 91st day, that sound went away. And there was peace and quiet in my neighborhood again. And then in September of this year, one night we quit running the air conditioner because the temperature had finally come down. And I can hear this low rumbling sound. What is this? Well, our backyard backs up to this uh, kind of warehouse area, right? And during the day, you don't hear the trucks. But in the still of the night, there's trucks running 24 hours a day in my backyard. So I'm mad. <laughs> I get in my car. It's about 1230 at night. I drive up there, and I'm shooting video, and I'm taking pictures of license plates, and I'm emailing the state of California, and I'm taking decimal re level readings at the property line and all this kind of thing, you know. And I, uh, that was a Friday night, and then Saturday morning, they're still running, and I'm like, this has got to be some environmental violation or something, you know, and I'm fired up about it. So I go gather all my evidence, and I come home. I'm so proud of myself, and I lay it all out for my wife. Well, my little girl had come down with a cold that weekend. And you know how kids, like, it's just a cold, but they're really whiny and needy. You know, it's just like the end of the world. And she really needs us. She really needs attention. She needs to be held and this kind of thing. And I'm just fired up about the trucks running. Oh, honey, I'm going to get them, you know. But it hit me like, like how out of proportion this thing had become, right? There's my little daughter. She's four years old. She needs us. She needs to sit on my lap and be comforted. And what am I just consumed with? A diesel truck, 
right? And that's what anger does to us. It just takes this little thing and just blows it like way out of proportion so we can't move forward down those tracks towards righteousness because we are just consumed with this one thing that is eating us inside. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So all I'm saying is, if you've got a cow on the railroad tracks, you've got to gently get the cow out of the way because it's going to stop you or it's going to derail you on the path of righteousness that is God's desire for you. Fifth, righteousness and a righteous life has a magnetic pull in two directions. It'll pull you towards God. It'll pull others towards your example. Romans 8, verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. In other words, what it's saying is the righteous life is characterized by, the Hebrew expression is, shalom. Shalom. Shalom isn't just a greeting that's hello. Shalom means peace be upon you. And peace is transactional. So when I am living in shalom, it can go a few different directions. It can be shalom between me and God. I'm at peace with my creator. Be shalom with the people in my immediate surroundings, in my household, in my friendships, in my workplaces. I am at shalom. When's the last time you experienced that? We can be at peace with ourselves because some of us live in turmoil with ourselves. We are just a constant ball of anxiety or doubt or second-guessing ourselves. And that's not God's will for us. The righteous life would be peace with ourselves and then peace with the entire world as we see it. A heart of love for the world like God has a heart of love for the world. And then that produces a magnetic pull. See, because then we're, we're drawn towards God and what God has for us and other people are drawn towards us. What do you think sets a better example for the outside world? Is it a life that is governed by death, darkness, negativity, or a mind that is governed by the Spirit producing life and peace? What do you think outsiders are going to be drawn to? Life and peace. Life and peace. There's no question about it. And that's when we start to exemplify what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. The change inside of you cannot be denied. People see it. They may not be able to describe it in words or exactly put their finger on it, but they go, there's something different about that dude. There's something different about that woman and the way that she handles adversity. It is impressive. Literally, it leaves an impression on me that I walk away and I don't forget it. That's the kind of magnetic lives that we want to live. And it starts with the righteousness of Jesus in and through us extending out to others. So let's draw this to a close with uh, five practical examples of uh, how you and I can live this righteous life in the year to come. Okay? Number one, remembering that the righteous life is a life. It is full of thousands of decisions. So what do we do with that? We train ourselves to make every decision through the lens of God's will. 
what would Jesus do? Uh, years ago in youth ministry, I had a student I worked with, and, and he said, he was really smart. He said, you know, he goes, I think of it like this. He goes, I feel like becoming a Christian is one decision for Jesus, but living as a Christian is like a million decisions for Jesus. I said, yeah, Jake, that's, that's about right. Number two, righteousness is a gift that is given to you and to me, so, so you need to believe a new story. One in which it is possible that God would actually give you grace and you could never, ever achieve it on your own. Do you believe that? Because that's the key to unlocking his supernatural power in your life. Number three is to reorient ourselves because righteousness is something to be pursued. And so asking yourself, what sort of discipline am I willing, formative discipline am I willing to adopt in my life this year in order to put down and keep small myself and my flesh and make him really big. What is that discipline that you're willing to adopt this year? Number four, move the cow off the railroad tracks because human anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And fifth, for you and I to make a commitment to grow in shalom in all of our relationships because righteousness will create a magnetic pull of other people into the kingdom. And that's the righteous life. It's the very best present that God can give, not just to grant us life and walk away and say, you're on your own, up to your own devices, but guidance and a will and the actual power of the Holy Spirit in and through us to live righteous lives. It's the best present. It's the one that he saved for last. And it turns out that it's the gift that you've always wanted. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask for your help, help in realizing righteousness in our own lives. It is a gift. It is so far beyond what we can make with our own human will and of our human hands. And it calls on us to... Put to death, the Bible says, put to death our own human ambition, our own human striving, and just rest on your grace. Moment by moment throughout the day as we live our lives to unlock the power and the potential of Jesus in our lives. In a moment, Lord, we're going to receive communion, which is a way of reminding us that we belong to you and we belong to one another and that your help is never far off, and that even if we've strayed in our hearts, uh, you, the Father, are waiting there at the end of the road for us to run back to you as the prodigal son ran back to the Father. So we pray that this will be a meaningful way to kick off our 2023, remembering that wherever we step foot in life, uh, God, you're, you're not far behind, and you have a will and a wish and a purpose for us, and we want to buy into that purpose and live righteous lives in 2023. Bless us, Father, as we take communion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to receive communion now. There's two membranes on this. If you peel off the clear one on top, you'll get to the wafer. And this wafer reminds us of the unleavened bread that Jesus was eating with his disciples the night before he went to the cross. He said, this bread 
broken is my body broken for you. And whenever you take it, you'll do it and remember me. And then beneath that is the cup of juice. And it represents the wine that Jesus lifted and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. That's the grace. His disciples didn't deserve the forgiveness of sins, and you and I don't deserve the forgiveness of sins, but it was offered by Jesus with the price of his, his life. So he said, whenever you take this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And Christians, since the time of Jesus, have been taking communion to remember uh, that he's not far from us, uh, to remember his sacrifice for us, to remember what unites us in our belief together. As we close this morning, take a minute to ask God, uh, what's an area of your life where you need his righteousness to break in and break forth this year? Just ask God that question. And to that, Lord, we simply pray, let it be, let it be so, which is the Latin word, amen, amen. Happy New Year, everybody. Have a great week.